The French Revolution, A History, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 1. Book 3, The Parliament of Paris. Chapter 7, Internecine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Book 3, Chapter 7, Internecine. What a France through these winter months of the year 1787. The very oeil de boeuf is doleful, uncertain with a general feeling among the suppressed that it were better to be in Turkey. The wolfhounds are suppressed, the bearhounds, the Duc de Coigny, Duc de Polignac, in the Trianon Little Heaven, Her Majesty one evening takes Bessonval's arm, asks his candid opinion. The intrepid Bessonval, having, as he hopes, nothing of the sycophant in him, plainly signifies that, with a parliament in rebellion and an oeil de boeuf in suppression, the king's crown is in danger. Whereupon, singular to say, Her Majesty, as if hurt, changed the subject. Et ne me parla plus de rien. To whom, indeed, can this poor queen speak? in need of wide counsel, if ever mortal was, yet beset here only by the hubbub of chaos. Her dwelling-place is so bright to the eye, and confusion and black care darkens it all. Sorrows of the sovereign, sorrows of the woman, think coming sorrows environ her more and more. Lamotte, the necklace countess, has in these late months escaped, perhaps been suffered to escape, from the Salpietre. Vain was the hope that Paris might thereby forget her, and this ever-widening lie and heap of lies subside. The Lamotte with a V for voleurs, thief, branded on both shoulders, has got to England, and will therefrom emit lie on lie, defiling the highest queenly name, mere distracted lies, which in its present humour France will greedily believe. For the rest, it is too clear our successive loan is not filling. As indeed, in such circumstances, a loan registered by expunging of protests was not the likeliest to fill. Denunciation of lettres de cachet, of despotism generally, abates not. The twelve parliaments are busy, the twelve hundred placarders, ballad singers, pamphleteers. Paris is what, in figurative speech, they call flooded with pamphlets, regorge de brochures, flooded and eddying again, hot deluge from so many patriot ready writers, all at the fervid or boiling point, each ready writer now in the hour of eruption going like an Iceland geyser, against which what can a judicious friend morally do, a riverol, an unruly langue, well paid for it, spouting, cold. Now also at length does come discussion of the Protestant edict, but only for new embroilment, in pamphlet and counter-pamphlet, increasing the madness of men. Not even orthodoxy, bedrid as she seemed, but will have a hand in this confusion. She, once again in the shape of Abbe L'Enfant, whom prelates drive to visit and congratulate, raises audible sound from her pulpit drum or Marca Despremenil, who has his own confused way in all things, produces at the right moment, in parliamentary harangue, a pocket crucifix with the apostrophe, Will ye crucify him afresh? Him, O oh Despremenil, without scruple, considering what poor stuff of ivory and filigree he is made of. 
to Woolwich had only that poor Brienne has fallen sick. So hard was the tear and wear of his sinful youth, so violent, incessant is this agitation of his foolish old age. Baited, bayed at through so many throats, his grace growing consumptive, inflammatory, with humour de dart, lies reduced to milk diet, in exasperation, almost in desperation, with repose, precisely the impossible recipe, prescribed as the indispensable. On the whole, what can a poor government do but once more recoil, ineffectual? The king's treasury is running towards the lees, and Paris eddies with a flood of pamphlets. At all rates, let the latter subside a little, D'Orléans gets back to Rancy, which is nearer Paris, and the fair, frail Buffon. Finally, to Paris itself. Neither Afrato and Sabatier banished forever. The Protestant edict is registered, to the joy of Boissy d'Anglas and good Malesherbe. Successive loan, all protests expunged or else withdrawn, remains open, the rather as few or none come to fill it. States-general, for which the Parliament has clamoured, and now the whole nation clamours, will follow in five years, if indeed not sooner. O oh, Parliament of Paris, what a clamour was that! Monsieur, said old Domesson, you will get States-general, and you will repent it. Like the horse in the fable, who, to be avenged of his enemy, applied to the man. The man mounted did swift execution on the enemy, but unhappily would not dismount. Instead of five years, let three years pass, and this clamorous parliament shall have both seen its enemy hurled prostrate and been itself ridden to foundering, say rather jugulated for hide and shoes, and lie dead in the ditch. Under such omens, however, we have reached the spring of 1788. By no path can the king's government find passage for itself, but is everywhere shamefully flung back. Beleaguered by twelve rebellious parliaments, which are grown to be the organs of an angry nation, it can advance nowhither, can accomplish nothing, obtain nothing, not so much as money to subsist on, but must sit there seemingly to be eaten up of deficit. The measure of the iniquity, then, of the falsehood which has been gathering through long centuries is nearly full? At least that of the misery is. For the hovels of the twenty-five millions, the misery, permeating upwards and forwards, as its law is, has got so far to the very oeil de boeuf of Versailles. Man's hand in this blind pain is set against man, not only the low against the higher, but the higher against each other. Provincial noblesse is bitter against court noblesse, robe against sword, rocher against pen. But against the king's government, who is not bitter? Not even Bessonval in these days. To it, all men and bodies of men are become as enemies. It is the centre whereon infinite contentions unite and clash. What new universal vertiginous movement is this of institutions, social arrangements, individual minds, which once worked cooperative, now rolling and grinding in distracted collision? Inevitable, it is the breaking up of a world solecism, worn out at last, down even to bankruptcy of money. And so this poor Versailles court, as the chief or central solecism, finds all other solecisms arrayed against it. Most natural. 
for your human solecism, be it person or combination of persons, is ever by law of nature uneasy. If verging towards bankruptcy, it is even miserable. And when would the meanest solecism consent to blame or amend itself while there remained another to amend? These threatening signs do not terrify Lomeni, much less teach him. Lomeni, though of light nature, is not without courage of a sort. Nay, have we not read of lightest creatures, trained canary birds, that could fly cheerfully with lighted matches and fire cannon, fire whole powder magazines? To sit and die of deficit is no part of Lomeni's plan. The evil is considerable, but can he not remove it? Can he not attack it? At lowest he can attack the symptom of it, these rebellious parliament he can attack, and perhaps remove. Much is dim to Lomini, but two things are clear. That such parliamentary duel with royalty is growing perilous, nay, internecine, above all, that money must be had. Take thought, brave Lomini, thou garde de sur Lomagnon, who hast ideas. So often defeated, balked cruelly when the golden fruit seemed within clutch, rally for one other struggle. To tame the parliament, to fill the king's coffers, these are now life and death questions. Parliaments have been tamed more than once, set to perch on the peaks of rocks inaccessible except by litters, a parliament grows reasonable. O Mopio, thou bold man, had we left thy work where it was. But apart from exile or other violent methods, is there not one method whereby all things are tamed, even lions, the method of hunger? What if the Parliament supplies were cut off, namely its lawsuits? Minor courts, for the trying of innumerable minor causes, might be instituted, these we could call grand balayage, whereon the Parliament, shortened of its prey, would look with yellow despair but the public fond of cheap justice with favour and hope. Then, for finance, for registering of edicts, why not from our own oeil de boeuf dignitaries, our princes, dukes, marshals, make a thing we could call plenary court, and there, so to speak, do our registering ourselves? St. Louis had his plenary court of great barons, most useful to him, our great barons are still here, at least the name of them is still here. Our necessity is greater than his. Such is the Lomini Lamagnon device, welcome to the king's council as a light beam in great darkness. The device seems feasible. It is eminently needful. Be it once well executed, great deliverance is wrought. Silent then and steady, now or never, the world shall see one other historical scene, and so singular a man as Lomonie de Brienne, still the stage manager there. Behold, accordingly, a home secretary, Bretaille, beautifying Paris in the peaceablest manner in this hopeful spring weather of 1788. The old hovels and hutches disappearing from our bridges, as if for the state too there were halcyon weather and nothing to do but beautify. Parliament seems to sit acknowledged victor. Brienne says nothing of finance, or even says and prints that it is all well. How is this such halcyon quiet, though the successive loan did not fill? 
In a victorious parliament, Councillor Gosla de Montsabert even denounces that levying of the second twentieth on strict valuation, and gets decree that the valuation shall not be strict, not on the privileged classes. Nevertheless, Brienne endures it, launches no lettre de cachet against it. How is this? Smiling is such vernal weather, but treacherous sudden. For one thing, we hear it whispered, the intendant of provinces have all got order to be at their posts on a certain day. Still more singular, what incessant printing is this that goes on at the king's chateau under lock and key? Sentries occupy all gates and windows, the printers come not out, they sleep in their workrooms, their very food is handed into them. A victorious parliament smells new danger. Despremenil has ordered horses to Versailles, prowls round that guarded printing office, prying, snuffing, if so be the sagacity and ingenuity of man may penetrate it. To the shower of gold most things are penetrable. Despremenil descends on the lap of a printer's Danai in the shape of five hundred louis d'or. The Danai's husband smuggles a ball of clay to her, which she delivers to the golden councillor of parliament kneaded within it their stick-printed proof-sheets. By heaven, the royal edict of that same self-registering plenary court of those grand balayages that shall cut short our lawsuits. It is to be promulgated all over France on one and the same day. This, then, is what the intendant will bid wait for at their posts. This is what the court sat hatching as its accursed cockatrice egg, and would not stir, though provoked, till the brood were out. High with it, Despremenil, home to Paris, convoke instantaneous sessions, let the Parliament and the earth and heavens know it. End of Book 3, Chapter 7